Hello and welcome. Thank you so much for listening to this podcast produced by Aerosmith Press. I'm Maddie, and in this podcast, you're going to hear a conversation I got to have with author Alexandra Marshall. You may know her from one of her many novels, Gus and Bronze, Tender Offer, The Brass Bed, Something Borrowed, and The Court of Common Pleas, as well as her nonfiction book, Still Waters. We had the chance to talk about her upcoming work, which is available for pre-order now and is coming out December 5th. And it's her first memoir, The Silence of Your Name, The Afterlife of a Suicide. Please enjoy and please go to our website, aerosmithpress.com, to pre-order her book. Thank you so much. I hope you enjoy. What was it like to write a memoir on such a difficult, you know, sensitive subject, which I think many people would find it hard to broach? I would say that I had an advantage in being a fiction writer and having tried it multiple times unsuccessfully. So it's it was not the first time that I was actually trying to write about a suicide. Um, I think that I never got close enough to it in fiction. And that's one of the things about fiction that's both a plus and a minus. Um, but, um, but I tried. And so when I finally then decided this had to be a memoir and I was going to tell it the way, because as we all know, you know, reality always um, is more unreal <laughs> than fiction. And so the only way a lot of these, these sort of surreal aspects could be presented would be if I just told what happened. And so I did. Did probing Tim's family and their storied complex histories give you some insight about why some of them might want to leave out certain family stories? Well, let me just try to answer it this way. That there's a book called The Roaches, which is a, a family history. I found it kind of deep in the Athenaeum. Um, and it and it goes back. And there's one chapter called The Great Roach Scandal. And I thought, this is going to be about Josephine and Harry, because it was written after 1929, when they died. And it wasn't. It was something deep in history, and, the, and that chapter ended with, but I am not going to mention any names. And I thought that was just very telling. It's a, it's a kind of legacy, a way of living. And in Boston, that really was, for Brahmin families, that really was the way people lived. They did not mention the unmentionable. I don't know if here you want me to say a little bit about Josie and Harry, um, just to explain why I just mentioned them. Um, Go ahead. I think I am going to ask that later. But <laughs> Josephine was Tim's um, aunt. And so we had seen her uh, gravestone. She died at age 21 and had no idea uh, of the story of it and, and also um, didn't think to ask, which is a regret, obviously, um, and I explain in the book why, because it's not just knowing the 
really calamitous story of what happened to her when she was essentially seduced by an older man who was suffering from PTSD from World War I and heavily medicated with opium and alcohol and um, who was married. And they had an affair, uh, even though she was about to marry another man. Um, and, and his whole story, what he went on to become after, after her murder-suicide, um, was a heroic man. So that story is really an important story, I think, for how, how a person can turn violence into nonviolence in his case, because he became a peacenik. Um, and even though he had served in, in the Second World War himself. So they're just really wonderful um, stories in, in that deep history that I wanted to bring out and that I thought illustrated both the larger life than just this one small family story. And you're speaking about Bert, correct? Right. So I had questions about him too. Like, could you, um, and then this kind of shifts, but it also involves him. Um, could you say more about Tim and your, and Bert's involvement in the civil rights movement, um, with ongoing assault on voting rights? This seems particularly relevant today. Um, so yeah, if you could speak to him and then to you too. Yes. In, in 1965, um, in March, uh, was the Selma to Montgomery March, Martin Luther King. And Tim um, was among those uh, people who, who made that march. Um, and he, it was five years before that, that the Freedom Riders, um, which is what Bert Bigelow was part of, and that put Bert Bigelow next to... Um, Senator, Senator John Lewis, who became really an icon for that movement, um, and then a very longtime congressman who died just a few years ago. But, um, but that was a, a, a heritage in a way that Tim could have very much been inspired by and connected to, was connected to, although he didn't know it. Um, and Bert then went on from 1961 to live, you know, many decades uh, longer. But that was the, it started really with those early Freedom Rider where people put their lives at risk. And then the marches um, that, that the next generation picked up. And that does set the, the ground for George Floyd in a way. I mean, it's, it's a horror that it has taken so long. Um, and, uh, will take even longer, clearly. But yes, you're absolutely right that there's a, a very strong thread. Yeah, it's and it's I'm very impressed, just especially with how long ago um, it was that Bert was so involved in all of this. So I'm mainly curious for myself about this. Um, this book begins with Tim and his family's history. Um, but throughout, you go deeper into your own, you know, your life afterwards and your own narrative. Um, I'm just curious, have you ever considered writing about before Tim, like of adolescent years? Well, again, because I, 
was a fiction writer, am a fiction writer, yeah. I would like to still think. Um, I Every time you're writing about an adolescent, you're writing about what you know yourself, right. having been an adolescent. And I found the first novel that I was able to get published had three children in it, a 15-year-old, a 12-year-old, and a two-year-old. And in that's where I realized that I... I have written about myself, not in any literal way, but, um, but understanding those feelings. Um, one is, is a total brat. Um, you know, one is just so soulful and one is only two years old. And so at the mercy, you know, of those things. So no, I have not ever thought about writing about my life earlier than than I am doing here, which really starts when I met Tim. Yeah, because you already have. <laughs> and you're talking about Gus and Bronze, right? Yeah. Yeah, so very cool. All right. Um, and I know you've kind of spoken to this about how you've tried to write this for quite a while and just haven't in fiction um, and it just hasn't come out exactly how you hoped. Um, like, how long was it before you decided that you wanted to write a memoir about this? The problem with all those earlier fictions was that I, I was, I did not approach an act that suicide is a deliberate act. Um, I know there are some suicides by overdose and you know other ways of, of dying by suicide that are not one hundred percent intentional, um, the way, um, the way this one, um, certainly is, but, uh, and I'll, I'll say this, it's not a spoiler alert at all because it's right on page 16 that, uh, the obituary notice, um, for Tim's mother, um, appeared. She died at age 92. So, and it was 45 years after Tim died. And he was not mentioned among those by whom she was predeceased. And that made me realize two things, you know, that I had been protecting her, um, that it wasn't entirely a surprise um, because she, she fully admitted how difficult it was for her to absorb the fact that Tim died by suicide. And so she just kind of pretended that he died by a tropical disease. Um, and she never had any curiosity really about what, what had happened, not at the time, not over the next 45 years, because we were close in touch. And so protecting her, um, once I understood that I had done that, I understood that I didn't no longer had to do that. And then, um, I also realized that, that his story needed to be told, that he needed to be named really is what, that's why it's called the silence of your name, because his name wasn't spoken and his name wasn't even written in the obituary notice of his mother. Um, so that was the big difference. And that again is nonfiction, because I think that if you try to do something like that in fiction, it just is, oh, that's not believable. You know, and that's kind of where it gets left always. <laughs> yeah. So kind of going with that, 
um, you say that in writing this book, you are claiming Tim in a way that his family hadn't, essentially. Um, do you feel that you've accomplished this task um, or what you sought out um, for this book regarding Tim's memory? I wanted it to be, it had to be honest. Um, but I also wanted to honor him um, because he was beloved. In fact, um, he was charismatic in ways that drew people to him. Um, to this day, the students that he was connected with at Exeter for one year only uh, are in touch with me about him. Um, and so it, it, his life mattered. He was a committed uh, student um, of religion and ethics, and his values uh, were very strong and important. And I wanted to, to present that um, and show him um, show him in that way, and, and also as a way to try to explain what might have happened to him, because of course the trouble with the suicide is you cannot be inside that person's mind in that moment. Um, but to try to, to uh, not speculate, that sounds a little too mechanical, but just try to imagine um, him in, in his, that, those moments of weakness. It almost seems or sounds like you were doing the opposite of the path his mother took with it, um, that you were interested in. I know there's never a good reason why, but kind of um, parsing that out and where she was more, let's not talk about it. I don't want to know. Um, so that I find that interesting, but. Maybe you also found interesting the point of view of the people in the village, because what I was so struck by was how matter of fact it was um, in in a culture where suicide is really is considered in such an unnatural act that suicides are buried at a crossroads um, so that the spirit can go in four directions, uh, be dispersed so that you don't know where where it is. Um, and that, of course, took me, as I explained, to my enormous regret. You know, it took me a long time to get back there to that village. And, and so I did not fully embrace uh, what had happened there to them and how long they, too, had been waiting for me to show up and, and explain um, as best I could. Uh, and I, I describe at one point going into the house at the um, invitation of the queen mother of the village um, to visit the, pe the person, who, the pe family that lived there now, and just being shocked. I call, I call it the nonchalance of, of their welcome. Um, and I tried to imagine myself if somebody had knocked on my door 30 years later and said, my husband committed suicide here. Would you mind if I <laughs> come in? You know, I think I would have uh, had a slightly more um, agitated response. Uh, but um, anyway, so it, it, it allowed me to, to um, first of all, understand the queen mother and the chief's brother was the prime minister of Ghana. 
and this happened in his ancestral village. And it was not at all clearly understood what had happened. Uh, the first assumption was murder, uh, which would have been horrible, obviously. Right. And the reason they, the police um, talked about murder with me was um, because the this is probably a little too detailed for... <laughs> You know, but, uh, anyway, I'll say it. Um, <laughs> like, uh, because it was the right side of his neck that was cut, which a left-handed person w- would be holding a knife in, in the left hand. Mm-hmm. Um, and so uh, as I explained that to the police, you know, they, they could say, okay, so he, wouldn't, he would not have been murdered. Um, and of course, too, we were able to describe the previous night and so on. But, but it was it was realizing, you know, that that this was um, that this was a a shock and a horror for the Busia family, and that one of the things, in addition to sending a delegation to um, sort of as a sympathy gesture, um, it was also to for damage control, like, you know, what had happened and how bad. I can imagine. Yeah. Cause, and it was, it was crossroads that you said, um, the program is called operation crossroads Africa and precursor to, um, peace corps. Is that correct? Okay. To peace corps. Yes. It, it was started in the fifties and it was, um, uh, it was started by the grandson of a slave and his uh, founding mission was to take black and white Americans and Canadians and send them to Africa so that the black kids, these, these would be college students, so that they would understand what it was like to be the minority, the majority race, and the white participants would understand what it was like to be the minority race. And it's a it's an essential lesson. Um, I say this in the first sentence of the book that in relation to myself, I, I mentioned that Tim was um, marching from Selma to Montgomery. And I say about myself that I was about to head out for a year around the world to um, Asia and Africa to learn that, that most important lesson for a white person of being the minority race. Um, so yes, Crossroads was something that that st- I already had experienced, and that really struck me as so crucial. Um, it would, uh, but the program still exists. Um, it's all 60, 70, whatever years later, um, and it still exists. Uh, Seventy, seventy-five years later, I guess it is. Um, yeah, so it's a wonderful program. That's cool. That's cool. I actually, I didn't know it was still um, happening. Okay, I'm going to kind of shift gears a little bit. So you recollect that period of your life um, in your 20s um, as if it was just yesterday. I think you remember things better than I remember last week. Um, so how are you able to write about this so vividly that happened so long ago? Um and what kind of research did you have to do for this? One advantage I had was that I had kept journals. And 
um, I wasn't a writer yet, so it wasn't the kind of journal a writer keeps. It was more like the like a diary that a girl keeps, <laughs> um, which I did too when I was younger. Um, and so I try not to quote too much from them because, um, you know, that's difficult reading. But I do quote from the journals, and I certainly re read and reread the journals. And also Tim had a journal, which unfortunately I only read after he died. Um, so I really had no idea of the level of distress that he actually had before even leaving America um, for that. So that he was extremely... Um, he was so unfamiliar with what he was getting into. Um, and I didn't realize that that was difficult for him. So, so journals, but then also the habit as a, um, traveler, um, that I mentioned Henry Adams and his definition of wanderlust, which is, um, you, you have an experience in order to be able to record it. Um, in a certain sense, and then that leads to your wanting to have more experiences. And that's a very clumsy way of putting the elegant way he put it. Uh, <laughs> but um, so that, so traveling and just taking in, soaking in, and then also the habit of being a writer. Um, and the point is that you have to, to figure out what it is that you're trying to say. And then, then make sure that you're delivering it with detail. Um, and that that's often is sensory detail. But then in a broader way, yes, there was actual research um, that I that I did a lot of um, for this. Um, a lot of it was about Harry Crosby and Josephine and that that whole history. What was Paris like in the 20s, um, which is part of this story? What was Boston like? Um, in the in the centuries who was jp morgan he's a figure in the book he was harry's uncle and godfather um and then bert bigelow and you know what a, a man that i only came to know through his obituary notice basically but could trace backwards um and and research these stories who were the freedom writers what was it like to uh, to be a enlist in the Navy right after Pearl Harbor. What was it like when the bombs were dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki, which was when he, when he turned away from war. Um, and so there were just many wonderful ways that I could amplify my own meager by comparison research, um, from my own little journals. Um, that's a long answer to your question, but yes, it was, it was a range of different ways of pro approaching it that's interesting that, that makes a lot of sense um i'm curious as a writer what when you say that there's like a difference between how you wrote as like a non-writer um versus as a um, writer what what do you find are the differences for you well the question you know everybody makes the assumption write what you know um that's kind of one of the lessons. Uh, other people feel the opposite. They feel no, you know, right. The point of the imagination is that you are imagining what you don't know in that sense. Um, but uh, I had not, I went to a very good all girls high school 
and a woman's college. And I had really wonderful teachers in both school and college. I wish I had been a better student actually to, you know, take better advantage of what, what they had to teach me. I, I, I feel I was too young um, in both places actually, <laughs> but I needed a gap year between middle school and high school. <laughs> you know? um, but anyway, um, but because I had gone to a very good high school, I, um, I got, I didn't have to take freshman English because I'd already read a lot of the books. Again, you know, you could argue, well, why would you read to the lighthouse in eighth grade? You know, because how could you possibly really understand just what it was as an event, as a literary event, um, to have a novel like that come along and, and all the people in it, um, which it's still, I reread to the lighthouse this summer. Um, it's a book I return to often, um, and, uh, and understand every single time I had no clue, um, what was going on (laughs) back then. But anyway, so what happened is that um, I, I didn't have to take freshman English in college and they offered a creative writing um, course. And so I took it because I thought um, that would be easy. <laughs> I know. <laughs> that is the assumption, isn't it? <laughs> yes. And uh, so my teacher, who was the, the, the Shakespeare teacher too, and she was a wonderful, wonderful Shakespeare teacher, um, but she taught creative writing. And, um, and I remember she assigned us to write a one act play. And I wrote a play that was about a whore whose daughter was a junkie and whose boyfriend was a sailor, which to me was like what I thought creative writing was about. You were just supposed to, you know, anyway, needless to say, her comment was, I think you should stick closer to your own experience next time. <laughs> so that that was where I learned, you know, that that dichotomy between what you know and what you don't know. Actually, you need to seek a balance. That's a, that's very interesting that you say that. I I presented a story at the beginning of this year about um like a basically a farmer who was killing chickens and everyone thought I grew up on a farm. It's <laughs> like, like I didn't nope. <laughs> I hadn't thought to pull from what I know, but I think But that's actually that's a really good example of, of if everybody thought you grew up on a farm, then you I mean maybe your audience didn't grow up on a farm either. I I don't think they did. <laughs> I really doubt they did. Okay. Um so The Silence of Your Name is a story about the aftermath of a suicide, but it's not just Tim's death that you have to grapple with. Um, You describe other deaths, other losses that you've had. Um, This is really a book about grief and loss and preserving people and text. Um, So was writing this a way for you to pay respect to those people or try to understand them? It was to try... Yes, to, to meet that need um, that was my own need. But at the same time, it was to try to speak more generally to the loss of other people. Um, and that's what I hope readers might find in the book, that 
um, they would understand something new about a loss of their own. Because what I have discovered with multiple losses um, is that they are all connected. All loss is connected. One, one image that occurred to me is it's like a kind of aquifer, the, a water source running horizontally in a way, and, and the losses are all related in that certain sense. Um, and in that certain sense, everybody's loss is part of that aquifer. It's something that runs under the surface of human life. And so with the loss of, of Tim, um, which was the first loss that I experienced at age 26, but then it was followed so quickly by the loss of my mother that it, in a way, it almost got eclipsed. Um, and I know people would say, well, there's, you can only lose one mother. Um, and that's probably not true come to think of it, because we all have surrogate mothers <laughs> too. But, um, but nevertheless, you know, it, it, it made me realize that those two losses were really deeply related, um, not just in time, but in me. And that that was a way to connect with other people. And the thing that, that I also really learned that um, I learned this from Bert Bigelow in telling his story the way I call it the ultimate alchemy, where what he did was he turned violence, the violence that had been done against him by his wife um, who betrayed him. Um, and the alchemy of turning that violence into nonviolence, he became a Quaker. He took in um, victims of the uh, bombing um, in Hiroshima uh, he, as I mentioned earlier, was um, John Lewis's seatmate um, on the Freedom Riders bus that was set on fire. Um, and um, the other ultimate alchemy is turning grief into love, because what you realize is in grieving the person, you are loving that person. And it's, love is a much better uh, state of mind to exist in than grief is. And so if there's anything in here in this book that, that a reader can relate to in it, that would be the message that I hope um, they would take from it, to the ultimate alchemy of turning violence into nonviolence and grief into love. I'm so glad you mentioned that, because that's actually one of my favorite lines from your book, is the one about... Um transforming grief into love, and I was going to have you elaborate, but that's perfect. Um, now you can definitely see that. Because um, above all this book, I feel like you you do show your love and the process of the grieving very well. So Thank you. I, I think that's a compliment. I really appreciate that. That's the ultimate compliment. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> On the night of the suicide, you say, without any real information about Tim's condition, I already knew that for the rest of my own life, I would be guilty of abandoning him. Do you still think this? Um, has writing this book helped you to, I guess, forgive your younger self? Oh, what a poignant, important question. Um, I think as I get older, 
in one sense, I wish all the more that I had been able to um, hold his body in my arms, you know. Um, but instead, as I admit here, um, I couldn't. Um, and so as I get older, I, I wish all the more I, I could have. And at the same time, I understand all the more why I couldn't. And so I wouldn't say that I use the word forgive, um, but I appreciate your offering that to me um, because uh, I'm going to think about that. And um, that would be actually a, a really helpful thing if I, if I did forgive myself. Yeah, I, I don't think it's completely defined within the book, but I'm like, I hope she gives her younger self grace. Given the history of mental illness in Tim's family, do you see his suicide as preventable or do you view it now as an inevitable fate? You know, I, I will have to say, I do not understand suicide um, still. And um, I don't, I know that there were multiple um, reasons you could even say. Um, I, but I, I think I had it backwards and that I assumed that if, if you had a father who had made gestures at suicide, that you would never do that yourself. That, you know, is, is, a, is too logical, however, um, because it means that I, I didn't understand that there's a pull. Um, so th that's one aspect of it. Um, obviously, too, you know, what happened with that fever that um, Tim had, you know, what was their actual an inflammation of the brain? The autopsy report, which I had done there, never really occurred to me that it wouldn't include analysis, chemical analysis, but it didn't. It was just purely descriptive. Um, and um, so, so that's an unknown. Um, but again, as, as I said earlier, the, what, what he is telling in his journals about how he was feeling, how anxious he was, um, and anxious about things that I would not have really understood he could or should be anxious about. Um, uh, leadership, you know, he was already a really proven leader. Um, so, you know, but this was different. And, um, so it, it, there are all these, these things that are unanswerable. Um, and I don't, I know that, that their suicide is, is understood as having a, some sort of genetic component, but I didn't really learn anything in all my research. That's another aspect of the research I spent a lot of time pursuing. Um, yeah, I can't say that I really have heard anything more helpful than as I report in the book, this friend of mine who is a psychoanalyst and the way she put it was he had enough ego strength to kill himself, but insufficient ego strength to not kill himself. And that sort of conundrum struck me um, as really a good summary of what there is to not be able to understand ultimately yeah it especially it was such a, a brutal way to do it it seems um yeah. i have a friend who when she read 
the um, the piece of it that was excerpted in the American Scholar, which was the Ghana portion, um, then and now. And she said she kept reading bread knife as butter knife. Yeah. <laughs> you know what? I might have too, actually. <laughs> we're all like I don't, oh my gosh i mean still still very brutal but yeah <laughs> in search of lost time Proust writes i felt myself reliving a past which was no longer anything more than a history of another person how much do you still relate to the young woman who was um held by her father wait yeah uh, by the funeral pyre that fateful night and how did writing this book affect your current orientation? Well, thank you for uh, finding Proust. Uh, and this is a wonderful passage too, um, because Proust in the book is, is a, another thread that, um, that, I, that I hold in my hand and tug on to try to um, keep getting different meaning from it. Um, that is, starts as the experience of memory um, and then really moves to an understanding of, of fear of death um, and trying to become free of that fear of death. So um, the, the young woman in this book, um, it's interesting because she's so much younger uh, than she's almost half the age of my daughter at this point. Um, and, and I remember feeling like when, when my children got to that age um, and their life was not changed um, dramatically like that, I, I just remember feeling the gratitude um, that, they, that they would not have that defining trauma. And, and one, this is slightly, it's not related to Proust, but it, it's, uh, it, it's something that I'm moved to say right now because one of the things in my, in my generation um, is that we were, we were born in the 40s, but we were kind of raised in the, on 50s values. And then the 60s allowed us to redefine our, ourselves um, different different values. Um, and the, the way men were considered stronger than women, women were not, you know, as I mentioned, you know, that it never really occurred to have the, the traveler's checks written in both of our names, even though we were co-leaders of the group. And even though obviously I became the sole leader. Um, but so there was just this sense of like, what, how old are you actually, you know, when, and how old do your parents treat you as, um, is something that changes over time. And for my generation, we were pretty much up and out at, you know, at age 18, we, when we finished high school, you know, you either did, got a job or went to college or, you know, you were kind of gone. And, um, so that, that was, that made it confusing for me uh, when then the life that I went on to have prematurely, again, you know, I would say, got married at age 22. Um, that's too young. You know, I was really 
very happy that my daughter was just about 30 um, when she got married, you know. Um, and so this is a rambling answer to, to your perception uh, there that you started with, uh, for which I apologize, but it's a rambling kind of problem um, <laughs> too. You know, like who are we? Um, and who are we now? Who were we then? You know, who might we become? Yeah, definitely. Um, completely agree with you <laughs> about 22 being very, yeah, it, it is, it does seem like it would be a very, like, forcing you to grow up even more so than you already were, um, having to go through something like that. That I think many people, I assume it happens if it happens that much, much later in life. Um, so I'm guessing that probably matured you quite a bit. Would you agree? Yes, because what it, it forced me to start over in a lot of ways. Um, and, you know, um, I don't know if I, if I had not already sort of left dance, um, I might have become a dancer um, and that might have been my life, which would have have had some continuity to it. But no, otherwise it was a rupture. Um, and, you know, I was, uh, I just started over and realized that I didn't, you know, I, I had automatically changed my name when I got married to Tim's name. And I could take that, undo that actually, you know, and, um, and that helped a lot. Yeah, that really helped a lot. Um, in the part of the book where you and your daughter, Lizzie, are going through her old books that she wrote as a child, you state this very, um, what I thought was very powerful quote, um, despite the disabling losses I had struggled again, um, here was my own revelation. I'm not dead. I allowed myself to say this out loud too, to not only claim my existence, but to define it by this moment. Um, can you speak to this more? Um, like, how do you claim your own existence? That was such a revelation to me because um, I don't know if, you know, maybe you, you have seen your parents empty your grandparents' house mm -hmm. after a death, or, you know, it's something that, that people are accustomed to doing after after a death and my realization was i was alive we were dismantling our past life in that house together and the fact that these just beautiful uh books of that lizzie had written and what i say about it is that those books as a third grader represent better mental health than, you know, <laughs> anything that I could, uh, could have come up with. But, um, there's, it was this sense of, um, of being fully alive and it's not, you know, somebody you'd think that somebody who has experienced a fair amount of death would have that feeling a lot. Um, but, and I thought I had even, um, but it was oh, but it was in that moment when I really realized it um, that the and I knew also because in another place I talk about a, a car accident and and having an understanding between how little there is that separates 
being alive and being dead. Not it's so it's so um, it shocked me even you know to have have seen the experience from from the outside when there was this accident when no one died but everyone could have um, that it 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 felt like a, a betrayal I even say um, you know of of something that I thought I knew so so this experience and I. I've had it now more and more, um, you know, willfully. I mean, I, like I say to myself, okay, now pay attention, you know, um, and I don't mean to, you know, be as kind of cliched as like, look at that sunset, you know, but it is about that kind of stuff, right? Mm -hmm. The moment. Yeah. Early in the book, you mentioned your um, engagement with modern dance, studying with the great Martha Graham. Uh, was there anything from your experiences as a dancer uh, that you found useful to you as a writer? Yes, um, the basics of dance. Um, and I was very interested in choreography, but it's also true in a warm-up um, in a class. One, it's all about the breath. And one movement relates it's not only relates, it's, it's connects to the next so that you, the body can only move that way. And when I realized that that's like writing, when you see sentences that move across the page that fit together beautifully, where one comes out of the previous one and leads into the next one, that's like dancing. Um, and it's all the breath is the thing that, that is the pulse of it. Um, and that was, that's very abstract what I just said, but you know, if you, once I realized that abstraction and then tried to figure out how to make it actual, um, I realized, yeah, that's a really good comparison. Yeah. That's very interesting. I've never heard it, um, phrased like that before. Um, kind of along with that your relationship with Philip Roth, um, what did his mentorship like mean to you? Well, he gave me permission to become a writer. Um, first of all, he helped train me. Um, and the first way he did that was by um, helping me to become a reader. Because as I said earlier, I was a French major, which meant I didn't really know anything about American literature. Um, I knew a little bit about British literature, um, which is how I kept coming back to Virginia Woolf. Um, but um, so Philip um, basically took me in. I, I say he, he took me in like a rescue pet, really. Um, and the, the way that happened was that his partner for those 10 years um, was named Barbara Sproul. And she was Tim's childhood friend and later college lover. Um, and she was, she knew Tim better than anybody, certainly better than I did. And, um, and so she and, and Philip invited me to come basically be with them. There was a cottage, uh, across the Valley in Woodstock from the house that they were living in. Um, and I stayed there and we would be together every day for 
walk and meals and um and at, then when they moved from Woodstock to Warren, Connecticut, um, I was would house it for them when they traveled and visit them often. And and Philip just gradually helped me understand how to become a reader and then how to become a writer. Um, the, the other thing that he that he taught me, and this this was right at the time that Portnoy's complaint was had been published. Um, so he was under enormous pressure. His life, you know, was blowing up both in a good way and in a bad way um, for him at that time. Uh, so it, it felt all the more generous to me, um, the generosity that he, that he offered me. And then when I finally thought, well, I guess I'd like to be a writer too. Um, and I have a story <laughs> to tell, uh, which was, um, the first thing I wrote, which he then gave me the title for, which which he called The Child Widow, yes. um, that is the thing that I then kept writing um, over and over. But uh, but Philip, the other thing that he that he taught me through his example of his own writing um, uh, was to try to stay this side of sentimentality. Um, like you can get right up to the edge of sentimentality, but don't cross that line. Um, because on the other side of that line is not just sentimentality, but melodrama. Sounds like a really immersive um, experience learning how to write. <laughs> That's very, very. I was so fortunate. He was teaching at the time um, at Penn and at Princeton. And. Um, so he had a lot of students, and I I know he I know how uh, respectfully he treated his students by the way he treated me. So we kind of spoke about this already, but making the transition from novel to memoir, how different was the process in writing in this new form? Um, with memoir, I really had to keep doing reality checks, in that I had to make sure that I wasn't embroidering. Um, I mean, with memory, you never know um, because you remember something one way one day and another way another day. Um, and so the idea to try to um, be faithful to a kind of memory that, that best resembles the truth, <laughs> um, what we call the truth, whatever that is really, um, I think that that was a good exercise for me um, because for one thing, it, it forced me to be introspective, literally. And I've, as, I'm, as I mentioned, I've done a lot of therapy. So it's not the first time that I actually was asking myself, how was I feeling? Um, but it meant something different um, than just to be letting myself go into other characters. Um, and always, always in my fictions, I, when, whenever anybody says, what, what kind of novels do you write? I always try to explain like psychological, because I like setting people up with a problem where they're competing needs and where they have to resolve it, resolve the problem. Um, and in a certain sense, that part of it, at least, was really true with, with the memoir. I, I have competing needs within myself. Um, 
to tell the story honestly and also to tell it in a way that would mean something to somebody else, I hope. Kind of related to that, is publishing this feel any different than publishing a novel? Just because it's, you know, your true experience and... You know, I'm curious about that. I don't know yet because... Um, it's coming soon. <laughs> next week. <laughs> I might. <Yeah>. No. <laughs> but, um, yeah, I don't... Um, I mean, for one thing, it's... You can't... I've interviewed people, uh, novelists, about their work, and it's very elusive when you're trying to talk about a novel because it's it's a construction. Um, so you're asking me actual questions about my actual life. And that does feel very different. Um, and so, you know, how I will feel going forward, I guess, is how I'm feeling right now, which is mildly comfortable. <laughs> But you are doing a great job <laughs> of making me feel more comfortable. But yes, I mean, it's like, hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I'm talking about myself here and I'm really not used to doing it. Yeah. It seems like fiction's very, it has a little bit of a shield behind it, at least, you know, in the memoirs, it's very. And also one other difference is with when you're publishing a novel, if, if you get a bad review, you say to yourself, Oh well, I'm already doing better because the the next novel I'm yeah. I'm at work on is doesn't make that mistake or you know, yeah. um, but but this is my one and only life, right. you know. I really do not intend to write another memoir. Right. What what is your writing process now, and how has it changed throughout your career um, from when you first started? Oh, Philip Roth mm -hmm. to now today. Well, that is a span of forty five years. Um, my first novel was published in 1977. That was actually my third novel. That you wrote. That I wrote. Right. That I wrote um, um, because I was learn, learning by doing, um, basically. Um, and it's a funny thing about publishing. You know, I was a teacher for a while. Um, and the thing that, that teachers are always telling their students is it's not about publishing, it's about writing. Mm -hmm. Which is, if you're in a program where the students are hoping to get published, it's not a very helpful message um, to say. But, but the one thing I've learned through experience is that it's really true that, because I've gone through sometimes long periods where I wasn't able to get published. And usually what that has meant was that there was something wrong with the writing. Even though I was writing every day and I have many unpublished novels to prove it, um, you are only as good as, as, as yourself, sort of, you know, and if yourself is struggling in some way, it's harder to be a good writer than it is if, if your life is going smoothly. And I remember my agent at one point said about my writing, he said, look at those sentences. They're so heavily encrusted that they are going to sink 
they sink under their own weight. And it was really true that I would just be as a way of like literally spinning wheels. You know, I would just keep working and reworking almost like embroidering and re-embroidering. But the thing would be too heavy. Um, And so it's, it's a kind of um, object lesson that if I were still teaching today, which I'm not, you know, I, I think I would deliver, try to deliver that same message that you really have to write every day. You do not have to publish every year, but it's good if you can. <laughs> and you can also, and, and this is something that I've done, something that failed as a novel. I would, uh, I would actually, here's the word, cannibalize um, and realize, oh, I have a novella there or I have a short story there, or, you know, you can take it to the ridiculous extreme and say, maybe I have a haiku there (laughs) um, and try to see if you can get that published. And that's what I did with this. As a matter of fact, Um, the, uh, the piece that got published in the American scholar and then in plowshares Mm -hmm. were extracts or, or pieces sort of drawn from the manuscript that I had. Um, and uh, that got published that then, I think, is probably what um, allowed Aerosmith to invite me to publish the work with them. Yeah. Do you have any, like, writing rituals? Do you do, are you a morning writer, night writer, whenever you feel like it? I, I, I always tried to treat it like a job. Um, and that meant that if I didn't get up in the morning and go do it, I didn't have, I wasn't working. Um, and you can take that to extremes. Um, like you can say, well, is it okay if I have a coffee break now? <laughs> like, but you, you really, I really have to get up and go to work. Um, and then there, there are tricks. I remember one editor loved the, the way I tricked myself um, with, uh, I had cut out an ad from the New Yorker it was a ring and I really liked it. And I put it on my bulletin board and I said to myself, when you get to page 100, you can send away for this ring. <laughs> so a little bribe, <laughs> a little bribe. Yeah. So, you know, do whatever, whatever you can to, you know, get yourself. And, and also, you know, like in that, don't punish yourself. Cause that's really what I was doing in that, in that period where I was forcing myself to sit and it would have been better for me to go to the movies, honestly. Instead of just coming at it with um, more of a lighter heart, open mind sort of situation instead of like, I'm terrible. And people, you know, get up, put in whatever time, but don't, don't overdo it. If it's not working, um, you know, some people can say a thousand words, whatever. Good for you. Yeah. You know, <laughs> yeah. is there any advice you would give to your younger self? And I know that's kind of a open question because of all the events in your life, but I would, you know, I was actually, I took risks, um, after college. Um, I mean, I wish, I wish that I had convinced my parents to let me take that gap year. I was kidding earlier about between middle school and high school. I could probably have waited there too, but 
literally, I wish I had taken um, that gap year between high school and college, and I would have been readier for college. Um, but I couldn't convince my parents of that. But I'm really glad I was able to convince them after college to let me go um, on that trip around the world. So um, I guess my advice to my younger self would have been, you know, to to try harder, you know, to convince them. And even when I was sort of bucking the culture, um, which I was, because as I said, you know, we were, it was back in the day where our, our shoes matched our handbags, you know, and um, we, we had our little bouffant hairdos, you know, and so um, we were trying to break away from that, but, but it wasn't, the liberation wasn't coming fast enough to really sort of carry us forward. So we had to kind of be persistent. Um, and I'm, I'm just really glad I was as persistent as I was. And I wish, I wish I'd been a little more persistent, but um, I wasn't, uh, I didn't entirely let my life pass me by in right. that way. I completely agree with that too. It's because it feels like you're being forced into college if you just go straight into it just because everyone else is doing it. But it's like, for me, coming back to get my master's, it's like a very conscious choice that was made where I probably would have studied English <laughs> back then if I had like taken time to um, think about it. Yeah. I'm, I'm actually really, I was glad to hear you say that you'd been out of college for four years and that, and, and especially obviously with COVID, there was talk about something that makes you introspective, um, exactly right? So you could really revisit the choices you'd made and, and the talents you have um, and figure out, you know, everything that, what they say, everything looks better in the rearview mirror. Um, that, you know, you if you go back, and this is advice that I give my kids and everybody's kids, um, you know, just look back and figure out the things that didn't seem to have anything in common with each other, but that do actually like writing and dance in my case, um, which I could come to see later, did not see at the time. So I'm really glad that that's your own experience, Maddie. And you mentioned this briefly on the uh, call with Aerosmith the other, but what's, what's next on your writing agenda, I suppose. I know you, you're just coming out with this, but. No, I'm so happy to be uh, writing a novel, which um, I had the good fortune of finishing a draft of before, um, before turning back to turning to the memoir and, and turning it into a book for Aerosmith. Um, Oskold is a brilliant editor. He really is. And, and this book that is being published by him at Aerosmith is a very different book from the one that I delivered first um, and from which those pieces were drawn and including also the Roth-related piece, which is um, coming out in LitHub on Pub Day. But um, yeah, so uh, I have this novel that that I had gotten to the end of for the first time, which is, as you know, as a fiction writer, that's how you know what it's about and you can go back. It's that great last line of Portnoy's complaint where the, um, the psychoanalyst, he 
the whole book is basically one long psychoanalytic session. And then the, the, the doctor speaks for the first time in the last line. And he says, now we may perhaps to begin. <laughs> and it's really like that with a yeah. first draft, right? You get, you know, you see what's what and who's who and what it's about. And, and then you can go back and um, really turn it into what it has the potential to be. So that's what I'm doing right now. And I'm very happy to be doing it. That is nice. It's a good distraction from the publishing part of it. Um, well, great. That's actually all the questions that I had. Sorry, I went a little bit over. but No problem. Those were excellent questions. Thank you so much for joining us. That was Alexandra Marshall talking about her incredible upcoming memoir, Silence of Your Name, The Afterlife of a Suicide. We thank you here at Aerosmith Press, and we hope that you will join us in future podcasts, as well as our online social media presence. We can be found at Aerosmith Press Real on Instagram and Aerosmith Press on all other socials. You can check out our website at aerosmithpress.com, where there's availability to pre-order Alexandra's or one of our many other authors' books. Thank you so much again, and keep writing. <laughs>